This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with set-piece consultant at a WSL club, Cam Meehan. He discusses why set-pieces are such an integral part of the modern game, the process he goes through when breaking down opponents' tendencies, and how this research is incorporated into a practical setting. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Cam, first of all, really appreciate you jumping on, spending a bit of your afternoon uh, with me. How, how are things at the moment? Are, are you all good? Yeah, brilliant. Uh, um, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it should, should be a really good conversation. I think, um, obviously, I spoke to you via social media. I think some, some of the work you were putting together really, really fascinated me. So for people that maybe haven't come across you or um, don't know your work, you just want to explain, uh, kind of, I guess, what you do, um, and I guess then w- why you do what you do, if you like. Yeah, so um, I kind of started off just like probably 16, 17, I was looking to get into coaching um, and looking to have that as, as my career, really. Um, saw an advert for Total Football Analysis, looking for writers, and that's kind of where I got started, properly looking at football analytically. Um, so I've been writing for them now for about three years, four years now. And that was just kind of every week doing a tactical analysis report on a game and then slowly, slowly kind of building up my skills on that. Um, from there, started to get a little bit more interested in set pieces, which was partly just because of influences from teams and also just from kind of the work I was doing with TFA. And then from there, started specialising set pieces a little bit more and started to look at that as a kind of niche area to get a career in or at least get a foothold and to then go on and get a career so that's kind of how it started for me. So as you said there kind of the bulk of your work at the moment in particular is looking around the the set piece and consulting and that and um, for you at the moment what what does that what does that entail and I guess why is there being such an emphasis being placed on set pieces in, in the pro game at the moment? Yeah, so I think probably in the past, set pieces had kind of a stigma around them if they were for maybe lower league teams or lower lower place teams in the league. Um, teams would kind of maybe over-rely on them um, to get goals. So I think that's kind of gone down a little bit. They're almost more in fashion now, if you want to put it that way. Um, so I think that's why teams are now looking to kind of get those marginal gains from it because obviously I think worldwide it's about 25% of all goals from set pieces um, so I think that's why more and more teams are interested in them as they start to kind of specialise and look for specialists more um, for me um, sorry what was the question for me again <laughs> no so what what at the moment around the set pieces what are you actually doing what what yeah. do you deliver etc yeah so at the minute I'm working with one club um, in the WSL and what I do is a weekly opposition analysis report so every game I do it's usually around a 20 minute report looking at all the opposition set pieces um, offensive and defensive and picking out weaknesses designing routines for the coaching staff to then implement themselves 
Okay, so obviously that, that's quite a big deal in terms of the level that you're working at. You know, you're going to be working with probably international players, etc. So if we're looking at the type of report you're putting together, what does that look like from start start to beginning? What kind of detail will be uh, put in front of the coaches and how do you have dialogue around how they then trans transfer this into their coaching sessions or transfer this to the players? Yes, so typical report, like I said, is usually about 20 minutes long. Um, that kind of is flexible depending on what coaches want. I know some coaches only want maybe a five-minute report, a really brief one. Some of them don't mind um, kind of that much detail. Um, I think one of the big things in analysis is how long a video should be, and it's something that I've kind of found out a lot about. Um, but my overall process, so just the general process would be watch all the set pieces the opposition have taken in roughly the last 12 months of a season. Um, that is corners, offensive, defensive, free kicks um, and throw-ins as well, I do. Um, so I'll go for all of them. Let's say if they have 20 games previous, initially I would watch um, the corners, let's say, from maybe 17 of those 20 games. From that, I'd be then looking at picking up weaknesses, so things like if you look at defensive corners, what system do they use? How many players do they commit backwards altogether? Um, is it a man-to-man -man or is it zone? Is it a mix? Um, individual weaknesses of players, things like that. Um, kind of lots of stuff within that. Um, and then from there, um, it's about kind of designing routines initially to kind of focus in on those weaknesses. And then, like I mentioned, because I've only watched, say, 17, I then go back um, look at them three most recent games and just kind of match to see if those weaknesses that I've picked up on have been implemented in those previous three games. So it's not just a case of watch all the corners um, and then pick out the weaknesses from there. I find that by kind of missing out a little bit of the sample, then doing most of your analytical work and then just using that as like a check, um, I find that really useful for my process. So that's something I kind of focus on a little bit. And in terms of um, how stuff changes over a period of time. Obviously, 17, um, 17 games could be quite a substantial part of the season. Do you see a shift from like that week one that you're looking at to week 17? Or invariably, are there similar patterns that kind of occur throughout a season? Yeah, so um, if we're looking at a team's defensive system, um, one of the good things about set pieces, or maybe the easiest thing about set pieces defensively is Teams are generally quite stable in the system. It's not, not very common that teams will kind of jump around and change the system throughout the season. Um, that usually only occurs if there's a change in manager or maybe they've conceded a lot of goals, for example. Um, offensively, it kind of changes. I think some teams are really uh, kind of really stable in their offensive routine. So some teams really like to, say in Denmark, a lot of teams crowd the keeper a lot um, and get a lot of players in the six-yard box. Other teams mix it up a lot. And obviously when teams start going down the route of um, looking at kind of opposition-specific routines and things like that, they become quite difficult to analyse because they're always changing every week. So I think that's kind of one of the advantages as well of kind of focusing on set pieces and employing a set piece consultant. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. Euros there, I think, is a fascinating one. Like you said, there was a lot of... Uh, disparity between how teams did did deploy in set pieces. I guess from an English point of view and, and watching their games, 
it was interesting to see how they didn't have as much success as they did in the World Cup previously. Um, yeah. From your opinion, from what you've seen, was there any particular reason for that? Yeah, well, it was quite interesting, England, because um, if you look at the data, they had the most shots from set pieces of any team. Um, but I do agree with you in that the shots were pretty low quality most of the time. There was lots of... Um, they did a few outswingers from the right side towards Maguire um, at the back post. And obviously, outswingers towards the back post is obviously near enough no pace on the ball most of the time. And so there was a lot of kind of over-reliance on Maguire, I thought. Um, so obviously, he was getting those shots, but they weren't really high-quality shots compared to, say, um, your Italy's and your Denmark's who had some really nice routines. Um, so I think that was maybe one of the downfalls. Um, but England were still probably one of the strongest in the tournament, I'd say. Um, there were a few nice free kick routines and you could see that had planned opposition-specific routines, whereas I think some maybe teams who didn't make it into knockout stages, you could see there wasn't kind of a, an opposition focus to it. It was just general broad routines. And in terms of templates for you when you, when you present back to these... Uh, individuals and coaches and stuff what type of format do you do that in so do you do it all via video with annotations do you use statistics and data to back it up what does that kind of actual presentation look like yeah so um mainly video um data i tend to use um kind of initially to kind of narrow things down for example and to just back up those trends that I can see on the video. So, for example, if instead of showing a team 10 outswinging corner clips, if I can then send them like a, a map, a corner map or something that just plots kind of the location of, of corner kicks, that's much easier and much kind of time efficient than showing them 10 outswinging clips that show them the exact same thing as the data does. So that's how I tend to use data. Um, and the videos, again, it's just a lot of short clips of corners and um, basically all I do is kind of code them up but obviously based on the trend and then try and clump them all together and get kind of the maximum detail I can in the shortest amount of time possible um, so again it's maybe a trend might be maybe four or five clips obviously it just depends on what the trend is but roughly it is again about trying to get it as time efficient as you can how long do you reckon that piece of work would take? So, say, for example, we're looking, you know, with a team you're playing, you're playing against Arsenal, for example, um, in a couple of weekends' time, you've been asked to do a massive block of work around what they do in set, their set pieces. How long would it take you to break down all their intricacies of set pieces and actually be able to present that back? Yes, yeah, so if I was doing a full report, so corners, free kicks, throws, um, it roughly is about maybe eight hours of work, eight to ten hours looking at set pieces. Um, so it's going through the footage, it's going back through the footage when you're clipping it all up. It's obviously then trimming it down, making annotations for it. Then there's designing routines for that, which takes a bit of time because um, you kind of want to get it right. Defensively, I, I found that that takes more time for me because I'm all, I'm almost kind of fearful of missing something in case. Because say, for example, I watch 20 games again worth of corners and then if it's 21 and they use a nice routine and then they end up using it again, that's just going to play on my mind forever. So it's obviously 
I do like to keep as detailed as I possibly can. Um, I think I think there's a Bielsa quote somewhere that's a really good about um, almost analysing the game like you're an idiot um, and that you don't really know what you're talking about. So you've got to watch as much as you can just to kind of reassure yourself. Uh, yeah, to confirm that you are doing the right thing. So in terms of producing set pieces then, um, obviously you're not going to know necessarily what the team's going to be for that weekend. You know, you're not going to have all that intricacy. So what planning would you actually put in place to design those set pieces? And do you have a framework which they say, no matter what, we're going to leave two players back or no matter what, we're going to leave three back and one on the edge of the box so you can create around that but you have to have that in place um yeah so what what does that look like yes yeah, so there's there's obviously a framework with every club in terms of kind of what you can do and what you can't do um obviously players and personnel plays a factor in that in that say for example if, if you've got a six foot seven tall center back um the back post might suddenly become quite useful compared to maybe a team who doesn't have that. Um, there's always a structure to, to kind of hold within it. So that's something to consult with coaches at the beginning to say how many players you want back. Um, and then from there, it's about kind of working within that framework. Um, but overall, there's not kind of, I haven't had limitations in terms of, no, we can't use that routine or no, we can't. Um, do that kind of routine, whatever like that. Um, but I usually design about three routines per game and it is kind of up to the coaching staff to then say, right, well, I like that one the best. Let's use that one. That one will be the most successful. Um, so it's not kind of all on me. Um, is that yeah. per segment? So is that like one free kick, one corner, one throw in? Or would that be like three for each? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah, that's it's usually, um, so I do three corner routines, um, maybe two or three free kick routines. Throw-ins I don't routine, um, it's more around principles. Um, so, for example, with the club I work with at the moment, I kind of presented a big throw-in philosophy to them, um, which they requested around offensive and defensive throw-ins. So instead of routine every throw and all coming up with a nice routine, it's instead building a structure and a principles around that so that the players can then, or the coaches can kind of coach that into the players and then they can use that kind of all the time. Okay, that, that's interesting. So I haven't heard that that kind of lineage before. So what, what does that actually mean? Kind of looking at the methodology and philosophy of throw-ins, what, what type of uh, actions are we looking for um, within that? Yeah, so, I mean, um, Liverpool, for example, um, Thomas Gronemarker, I've spoke with a bit, um, their throw-ins, they might have maybe one or two routines from throws, um, but throw-ins are quite variable and they change kind of depending where you are on the pitch, things like that. Um, so, for me, having a philosophy or a framework to work within kind of a set of rules from throw-ins um, really helps. So, I'll just, I'll just pull something up quickly. That'll help me. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the kind of key parts of my throwing philosophy is I designed like a, um, like a flow diagram, which is just kind of like a decision-making tree looking at if certain things fall into place, what can I do, what can't I do? So I'll, I'll just kind of read it out for you. So first thing, can you throw quickly to find a safe possession? 
Um, so not every throwing has to be kind of lots of rotations, um, lots of decoy movements, things like that. If you can throw quickly to find a safe possession, throw the ball and support the player receiving the ball, basically. Um, nothing too complicated there. If you can't throw quickly to find a safe possession, uh, get set in a structure. Again, that structure, again, is something that I, I talk through with the coaching staff um, and also kind of put my own stamp on it if I can. Um, so with the club I work with now, I've got a certain structure that we like to use um, and we work within that. And then from there, identify the space within it. Can you make intelligent movements? Um, intelligent movements is uh, deliberately broad, really. Um, so in there, there's things like blind type movements or so moving behind your opponent all the time and decoy movements. So can you move somewhere else to open space for somebody else? Um, opposite movements or so similar if one player comes short, can the other then go long into depth and height? Um, and again, like in open play, the, the real aim is to create a free player. So has a free player been created from those intelligent movements? Um, and can they progress or have a safe possession in the ball? If yes, then throw the ball to them and then support them. If you can't, if you still haven't created a free player, go back to that one of those early steps of identifying the space and just work it again. You'll notice if you watch Liverpool, um, sometimes they take those quick ones, which is when they've found a player quite quickly. And if they can't, they are quite patient with it and they'll take the time, do a couple of moves round and round until they create that free player. Um, around this, was this an area that was identified where a lot of transition and turnover happened prior to all this work being put in? Yeah, um, it, it was just something that um, the club felt like they were weak in um, or felt like they weren't kind of paying enough attention to. Um, and obviously, as I am kind of acting as a set-piece consultant for them, it made sense for them to kind of contact me and ask me around it. Um, so then from there, I just presented um, a lot of clips of other teams and how they take throw-ins and then kind of cross-reference that with how the other team that I work with takes throw-ins and kind of how they can improve what they've been doing quite well and um, things like that really so merging my own philosophy with the club that I'm working with. And is it important when you are clipping up footage and looking for other examples that you find uh, ones that uh, play in a similar way um, so for example you could say oh yeah, I really want you to go like Stoke with Rory Delap, but if they haven't got someone who can throw the ball in the box from mental distances, then obviously that's not going to be the case. So is it important for you to go and find uh, like other examples of teams that play very similar to them to use? Yeah, um, I think throw-ins, particularly kind of short throw-ins, which is what I mainly look at. Um, I think lots of teams are starting to get a bit more involved in that now. So I think possession-based teams are really keen on it. Um, just because it gives them a way to keep hold of the ball and maybe progress it in, in kind of good opportunities. So if you take the defensive third, for example, if you've got a throw in your defensive third against maybe a team who wants to sit back a, a bit more, if they kind of take the opportunity to kind of close you in from a throw in in your own third, that's almost an, a, a really good offensive opportunity because you've got them there when the, they have pushed a bit higher and they've pressed a bit higher for you. Um, so I think it is really useful for teams to start looking at it a bit more. So again, it's something both, I did both defensive throw-ins and offensive throw-in philosophy based around it. 
And is there, if if you look at the thirds of the pitch, so, you know, defensive third, middle third, attacking third, is there any generic fast rules that tend to have more success within those areas? So is there anything you would say in your defensive third, look to do this or look to implement this, middle third, look to implement this, um, attacking-wise? Is there anything that helps you, obviously, one, retain the ball, but then also, also hopefully progress it moving forward? Yeah, so again, it's. I think the middle third is the most generic because it, it almost combines aspects of the other two. Um, so the kind of general rules, I mean, that, that structure that I mentioned, um, which changes um, from team to team, to pick, kind of depends on what formation you play as well. Um, that's a key part of it. Um, and then, like, like I mentioned, it's, it's kind of the skills within it. So how you interact with your teammates within that structure. Um, so constant movements um, around the taker. There's certain spaces around around the throwing taker. So for example, there's the space, we call it the ball near space, which is kind of directly in front of the thrower, and ball far space, which is obviously a little bit further away. And then there's two sides, obviously left and right uh, for the thrower. Um, can we then make movements, make opposite movements, decoy movements, things like that, um, to exploit those particular spaces? Um, when I'm doing opposition analysis on throws, I'm looking at how they mark, how they set up, are there any weaknesses in the structure from throw-ins? And then from there, I'll suggest maybe aspects of that philosophy which are particularly useful in that game. Um, so, for example, if a team's really man-to-man, um, we're going to use lots of rotations, we're going to use maybe blocks from throw-ins, things like that, just so we can dismark and create the free play that way. So when you look at someone like Leeds, for example, who are obviously very high energy, very in your face and very man-to-man orientated in that middle area, um, is there anything that you think feels like has particular success against a team like that? Yes, yeah, so um, I think Liverpool had, had some decent success against Leeds from throwing. So obviously they have a throwing coach, which is <laughs> pretty useful for them. Um, Again, like I mentioned, against kind of man-oriented teams, what we want to do is um, maybe look at blocks. So Liverpool do a nice routine where um, they throw the ball backwards, but they set a block for that player who's going to receive going backwards. Um, And they usually do that with the central midfielders. Um, And that kind of gives you a safe possession to then go and play out. Um, Another thing Liverpool like to do a lot is um, just kind of bounce it back to the throw-in taker. So usually a full-back. And then there's obviously got Alexander-Arnold and Robertson who can then switch the ball right the way across brilliantly. Um, so, yeah, there's kind of general things like that against man-oriented teams. Um, but again, the structure as well depends. Um, some teams, one of the key things from throw-ins is do they use a spare player? Uh, by spare player, I mean, do they leave a player free to go and press the thrower? Because um, I think if you look lower league football, especially I wrote a piece on this not long ago, on kind of lower league teams don't leave a player to press a thrower. So it almost gives you a free cross in the final third or gives you just a free player um, anywhere else on the pitch. Um, so that's something I focused on. So if they don't do that, can we then look to access the thrower and then work kind of structurally around that? I, th- I think that's interesting how you you link kind of 
the I guess the level of football in into comparison to the tactical side. Do you th- is there any particular reason you think teams don't bother marking the flow thrower uh, at low levels? Um, I think maybe it's, it's kind of just structurally. So what you see a lot of the time in football is they'll press a player near the thrower and then carry on the pressing room. So they'll almost take out two players in one sometimes. Um, but again, I think it's just a lack of preparation. If I don't think many lower league teams um, kind of plan out the structure when they're defending throw-ins. It's just get set in your usual um, out of possession shape and kind of work it from there. And it, well, it's, it sounds like from here you can be very structured um, within that. And like, obviously, I've read through some of your work and stuff before, and you you likened it to a little bit to like NFL in terms of having set things. Do you want to just talk through how you made that comparison and what elements of the NFL type stuff you can potentially implement in in this scenario? Yeah, so I think if you look at American sports, um, maybe basketball, I've talked about as well, and and American football, um, they can be quite fixed sometimes, so quite set, obviously set pieces as well. Um, so one of the really nice things I think about corners, especially is because football is such a variable and kind of open game, um, having set pieces like that gives just gives you kind of more control as a coach. I think that's kind of one of the reasons I got into it. Um, so for the NFL, um, I looked a lot at wide receivers and how they get away from from uh, defenders and um, that's a key part of my philosophy so can we if we look at say a generic corner routine um, it relies heavily on maybe two players working together um, it relies on a clever movement a block things like that to get away from a player um, whereas we look at in the NFL sometimes all it is is a wide receiver making a few steps to the right and then moving left and then they beat a player 1v1. Um, so my thought process was, why can't we have that in football? Why can't we have maybe routines um, or a generic philosophy again of can we make our, te- our players better 1v1? So we don't always have to have a really intricate, well-coached routine. Um, so for example, in a game, if you've got two ru- two corner routines, and neither of them have worked and you're in the 70th minute, um, you're then relying on the players to get away from their markers. So can we improve how they do that? And how would, how would that transfer to the pitch in terms of, I guess, actionable training session sessions or actionable um, drills that can be put on? Have you been able to, or have you had any success in transferring those ideas from a theoretical model into a practical setting? Yeah, so I've done a bit um, kind of with local local teams, just youth teams as well, just a little bit. Um, it's obviously not something to focus on a lot with youth teams, but um, I did do a little bit. Um, so just for training sessions, really, um, I've watched some kind of NFL trainers and look what they did. Um, and it is largely kind of footwork-based. So it's kind of, can we run to a certain position, for example? Um so, for example, I, I saw something recently. It was um, one player starts at a cone um, and you have a defender just in front of them. So it's just a 1v1. You give them, say, a coloured cone to go to and you've got three cones, left, middle, right. Can you get them to beat the man? Um, 
to then go and touch that cone before the defender does. Just think basic things like that. Um, we're just looking at footwork. How can you use your hands um, to get away from people? Body shape. There's, there's so much kind of intricate detail in the NFL of what looks such kind of a simple thing. You're just stepping one way and going the other. All kinds of uh, kind of movement dynamics, things like that. So there's lots of stuff to go into. And is that something you'd like to dive into a little bit more in terms of how they, I guess, how they coach that? So how do they coach contact with their hands and how do they coach the football side and then look to, I guess, implement that to the top level in some aspect? Yeah. Um, so at the minute, I'm only kind of a set-piece consultant, so I haven't done much kind of face-to-face -face coaching, but that's something I definitely want to get into. Um, and I have been watching kind of... Um, like I mentioned, NFL training sessions, things like that. Um, and I'm really keen to actually kind of maybe go to one in person, for example. So there's, there's obviously UK-based NFL teams as well. So I'd, I'd love to get the opportunity to just kind of go and watch um, an American football team over here um, and see how they train those wide receivers to get those particular skills. And then obviously there's lots to take away from that. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I'm a big advocate of stealing from other sports. I think the one you said about using your arms is a really interesting one because they do do a lot of work with the kind of airbags about how you do that and thinking about if you've got someone there, if you can, I think it's a swim move, they call it. If you can use a swim move to get past them and you're good enough in 1v1s, it does allow hopefully more more opportunities to, to head and stuff. So if we're looking... Um, generically in terms of what has the highest level of success rates uh, from kind of your your corners if you like if if i was coming to you so i'm a manager i'm a spurs fan so i say spurs i come to you and i say listen i, I want the highest potent uh, the highest success rates within the each of these areas that's how we're going to work our framework of what over the globe has the highest success rates what would we be looking for in terms of our setup from taker in terms of how they set up to where the ball's delivered to where runs are all that type of stuff yeah so um i mean a lot of it is again depend on the opposition but we'll say let's for example we're facing up against a, a mainly zone team um just for example um so taker we're looking at our delivery type Mainly against zonal systems, we're looking at outswingers tend to have the most success rate, um, simply because outswingers um, are simply because zonal systems obviously guard mainly the six-yard box and the goal, so they are, they do sit quite deep. Outswingers obviously swing away from the goal, so they access deeper areas. So, pretty it's fairly common sense, really, and kind of generic that outswingers work best against zonal systems. It's not always the case, and it's obviously kind of specific weaknesses in opposition, but generally outswings work best against um, zone systems. Defensively, if we're looking at it, um, I don't have the data to back it up yet, but I am kind of doing my dissertation on it next year, um, looking at the data on set pieces. But for me and my philosophy at the moment and what I've kind of witnessed, um, more zone-based systems, so four zone players or more, tend to have more success than kind of purely man-oriented systems. So if we take Leeds again, for example, I think they were pretty shallow at defending corners and free kicks last season. Um, just because teams, it's, it's almost just way too easy to figure out how to 
kind of design a routine around it. Um, I think Chelsea and West Ham had some really nice routines, just really simple. If all you have to do is lose one player and you've got a, pretty much a free header in the box. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of that for that question. Yeah, and in terms of like where you're asking players to move, is there particular areas the goal to fill at particular times? So I look at Tottenham, for example, over last season, and the number of times I saw probably Son peeling into that back area post. So it'd be an outswinger, he'd peel into the back post, hopefully, I guess, and knock down some stuff. Is there particular areas in, in this scenario we're given with the outswinger and stuff where if you put players in them, you're more likely to get success? Um, not that I know of generically, um, but again, my dissertation will hopefully answer some of these questions. Um, but for every game, pretty much, I, it can be a different target area every game if we're looking at kind of opposition-based. Um, but you mentioned kind of that movement by Son. Um, that's obviously just looking for that flick on um, from the outswinger. Um, and again, that might be something that they're generically built in. So teams do have kind of generic things that they might come back on. And for example, the team I work with um, this season, um, the season before when I didn't work with them, they obviously had their own routines um, and had things already. Um, so they can obviously fall back on them as well. Um, but like I mentioned, most of my stuff is, it can change drastically game by game, which again, I think is useful. Um, if a team's analysing us, um, they don't really know what's coming. And do you know how how often the team you're working with, do you know how often they actually practice the set pieces that are ready for the, the weekend or the game day? Yeah, so most coaches and teams I've talked to um, tend to do set piece work maybe the day before the game or obviously the day before the travel maybe. Um, not many teams spend maybe one or two days on set pieces. Um, but again, it depends kind of where you are at in the cycle. So, for example, after I did um, a throwing philosophy for the team, um, they probably worked on that or built into training sessions a little bit more, just bit by bit. Whereas maybe corners and free kicks, because they are a bit more routine, it's kind of day before the game, go through them, go through some video. Um, this is what we're going to try and exploit. And again, it's about giving the players the maximum amount of detail um, and the maximum amount of useful detail without kind of overloading it. Because again, when I'm designing my routines, it's you've got to make it as simple but as effective as it can be because you don't want to rely on five players moving in kind of really intricate routines. Because if you do, you're then putting more pressure on the coaches to then coach that. And it's obviously... If you're relying on one person to make an intricate movement compared to five, you've obviously got a better kind of chance. So if, if we're looking at, um, obviously, at, at the top level, you're going to get some kind of, I guess, experts in the set-piece delivery. So we look at Ward Prowse, for example, in Southampton is exceptional with, with his delivery. How do you go around managing that from a defensive standpoint? So how do you set up for someone like James Ward-Prowse who's got excellent delivery very often kind of in-swinging around that six-yard box? What kind of things can you put in place to try and nullify the, the um, effectiveness of that? Yeah, so it's 
kind of just like relying on your system again. So practice. Um, if you mentioned James Ward-Prowse, you're expecting him to do lots of in-swings to, let's say, the near post. Practice within your system, defending near post in-swings. Um, maybe James Ward-Prowse isn't kind of as easy to replicate um, for your team. But again, you're relying on um, that system that you usually use. Um, something I'm quite keen on um, is can your system maybe adapt to certain kind of trends that the opposition have got? Um, so we're not talking massively, say, going from a two-players own system to a seven-players own system. We're talking maybe um, shuffling along to the near post a little bit, maybe adding one more zone player, things like that, um, depending on how the opposition kind of play. Um, so, yeah, if, if we were preparing for James Ward-Prowse delivery practice, the delivery we think are going to occur. Uh, I guess... Um... To, to an extension of that, how do you cope against someone who's very good in the air? So if you look at Harry Maguire, the example you gave earlier, obviously teams would have noticed that he was very good and very effective during the recent World Cup. So from the work that you've done, the analysis you've done, how do you go around counteracting an injury like that? And is there any way to make them less effective within these types of areas? Yeah, so something I'm keen on and I do... Um most of the time in my work and in my reports is I do kind of individual player profiles on the opposition's um, kind of key players in the air. Um, so if they've got a particular threat, I'll look at um, maybe a larger sample size of corners again and just focus on that player. Um, and then from there, you pick up kind of certain characteristics. So some players rely on acceleration to get away from a marker. Some of them might rely on using the hands. Um, some of them might rely on good footwork, things like that. Um, and then we give them kind of just a little profile of what that play is like and what you can expect from them. Um, and then from there, the coaches will brief maybe one or two of the players on those key players. Um, depending on who it is, we'll assign a marker to them. So sometimes I recommend which player should mark who, um, just based on those characteristics again. So if you look at Harry Maguire, for example, um, I'm not sure he makes too many movements to the front post. Um, so you can almost show him towards the back post or prepare yourself to go to the back post with your body positioning. Um, just small details like that, again, that I think can help a lot. And then, again, if we bring it back to the NFL, um, if you take um, cornerbacks, for example, or things like that, um, how do they prepare for a wide receiver? They'll watch lots of film, see what kind of movements they do, um, and then they'll kind of go into their own skills of how to manage that so again it's kind of watching the feet um footwork things like that again and again there's loads of details going to on that and would you put individualized profiles uh together that would then end up with the player so if it was someone like harry Maguire, would you put all of this together with video send it across and show the players those intricacies or would you do the more generic one and then it's down for the coaching staff at the club to actually put that together? Um, well, it's, it kind of goes in the format of um, I'll have kind of a big, almost like a PowerPoint slide of just maybe five players and what the characteristics are. And then I'll split the video into each um, player. It goes to the coaches and then the coaches, again, can kind of do what they want with it. Um, but it's something that is requested um, 
particularly in maybe games that they've got more time to prepare for. Um, so, so yeah, it's kind of just like that. Yeah, and it's, I guess this answers the question why you see at the top level, sometimes you've got Harry Maguire who's 6'4", or whatever, and you have someone who's maybe 5'7", apparently marking him. But I'm assuming that's because they're trying to maybe funnel them into an area where they've prepared maybe some of their better attacker of the ball uh, or, or whatnot. Yeah, it, it can be based on kind of the characteristics of it. Um, it can also, sometimes it can just be disorganisation. Sometimes a lot of teams um, or a lot of people watching it think, oh, they must be doing something clever here, when sometimes it might just be simple disorganisation. Um, so, for example, if, if Maguire was playing against a team that I work with, um, because I don't think he's particularly nimble or uses acceleration very well, we probably would just put our best aerial player um, and, again, try and funnel him towards the back post and get your body positioning ready, maybe get zone players um, slightly more towards the back post to cover that if we need to. Um, but again, it's just kind of preparing for the most common things and making it as predictable as we possibly can. And then in terms of creativity with set pieces, so obviously you see it on YouTube a, a relative amount or on TikTok or Instagram, whatever, where this team from Iceland's third division has come up with an unbelievable set piece routine that, that pops up. Is there any teams that you think are particularly creative in the way that they um, either get space to get headers or attack the ball or create space in order to um, get shots on goal. Is there anyone particularly creative and forward-thinking in this field? Um, in Belgium, there was this season there was um, OH Leuven, I think it's pronounced. Um, they're in the first division, the pro league, um, and they were really kind of creative in the in the free kick routines. Um, I mean, there, there's lots of teams who've maybe um, I'm not sure how to kind of define creativity in the sense in that. Sometimes it doesn't have to be a kind of wild new routine because, um, like you mentioned, you do see them. I mean, there was a, I think it was an Oldham Athletic three, uh, free kick about a year ago that was just that went viral. Um, it was just a direct free kick where they um, almost stood in front of the goalkeeper and pretty much just danced in front of the goalkeeper to put him off. <laughs> so, creativity. Um, I'm not sure whether they have to be creative. Some of them are just kind of really effective teams. Um, so, I mean, Chelsea are really good. And again, they have not a set-piece coach, but they've got a coach focus on them in Anthony Barry. Um, Liverpool in 2018-19 were brilliant. That's kind of what inspired me to get into set-pieces because I'm a Liverpool fan. Um, who else? West Ham this season have been brilliant. Um, again, they've got weapons that they can use. Um, from that, so some teams might rely on kind of more brute force, um, as I put it. So West Ham got really good aerial players. Cheltenham in League Two use a lot of nice ones. Um, I think Forest Green and Carlisle were quite good as well. They scored a lot of goals. Um, but yeah, I do basically keep a big list of kind of teams to watch. Now I'm going through this summer. I've been going through some of those teams and kind of picking out certain things that I can look through. And do you keep like a massive database of all the set pieces and whatnot that you create, or are you just kind of like, no, I created for that game and then I'm I'm done with it? Um, I don't keep kind of routines stored at the moment. Um, 
if I see a nice kind of example of a, of a thing, I keep I keep like a clip database, so kind of name them just based on what's going on. So I might, it might be um, decoy run near post versus two players own systems, things like that. Um, so that if we are playing against a two players own system, I've maybe got the examples that can maybe inspire me for a routine, or I can actually show um, coaches to show that this is actually what it looks like in practice. Um, because most of my routines when I'm showing them are just kind of still images, diagrams, things like that. And what uh, what software do you use to clip all this stuff? Do you have a specialist software or is it just kind of generic computer? No, um, I've done I've <laughs> done quite well really in that I've just used, um, I use Windows Video Editor. It's the same as iMovie on a Mac. So I've not had to shell out any money for any coding software. I kind of get... Um, download all the corners, um, stick it into a video editor, and then just uh, split every time there's a nice clip that I might want to use, and just do it like that. And it's it's a much easier or much cheaper way than kind of getting all that software. And would those games get sent to you, or do you have to source them? I source them um, at the moment just because I've got access, um, which can come through my other work, maybe with TFA. Um, but there's also the option that they've obviously got all the databases, so if, if needs be, they can send me them. No, that's good. And in terms of where set pieces are going to end up, obviously we're seeing more and more teams in the Premier League now hiring, you know, consultants or set piece coaches or, or whatnot. Where do you think this field is going to go over the next, you know, two to five years? Yeah, it's always kind of strange when things seem to start kind of developing this way in that obviously if let's say if eventually every team's got a set piece coach or a set piece specialist working with them um two teams then almost just start, start kind of counteracting each other um and the set pieces then become less of a weapon because of it um at the moment maybe in the next one to two years i think more teams will start looking at um either focusing more on set pieces or employing set piece specialists. Um, and you can see already the teams that have done it have had success doing it. So Liverpool, um, we obviously know the success they've had, but if you kind of zoom in on it a little bit, so if you look at the Champions League final in Madrid, um, the first goal is, I think it was after 24 seconds, it comes from a kickoff routine and then kind of a dodgy handball <laughs> going into a penalty. And then the second goal, which seals it, is the second phase off a, off a corner. Other times, they scored late on in that season as well with, with an Origi free kick. Famous Barcelona game, corner goal, which was spotted by Naran lists that Barcelona didn't get set up quickly enough from corners. Um, so that was not a prepared thing, but something that the players knew about and something that the analysts spotted. Um, so I think everyone can see the rewards that are coming from it. And I think the Euros as well are a big help in that international football can be quite reliant on set pieces sometimes just because the games do get so tight. So Italy, again, had a set piece specialist working with them, Gianni Vio. Um, if they, if they maybe, maybe if they didn't have him working with them, would they have got a goal from a corner, um, which they did in the second half against England? Um, so then, again, it's looking at if we look at possession-based teams, if you can't find a way through with the usual style of play and you're getting 15 corners a game, 
surely you want to be taking advantage of them because the massive situations that can change games. Yeah, I think it's interesting that being highlighted more and more. I remember seeing a clip of the Champions League one you're on about where they'd actually practiced it, um, I think, the week of training, and you saw the mirrored images next to one another, and they ran the exact same way. I've seen the one with um, Mourinho moaning at his United team because Tottenham scored within, I think, nine seconds. And he'd explain to them, he goes, the ball will go from here, the four centre-back direct, and that's where they will start from. And again, Ericsson scored and he was having a pop. So I think, it, as you said, it's becoming more emphasised teams that have success within these areas to, to watch out for. So I think it'd be interesting to see how it, it shapes that moving forward. Um, so the last question for me, and again, this this may be challenging for you to, to, to answer without divulging which team it is, but who's the most impressive uh, coach you've worked with um, or against in this area or, or, and why? Or it could um, be the most impressive person you spoke with regarding this area or why? If that's an easier question. Yeah, it's a bit easier. Um, yeah, so probably um, I'm quite lucky that kind of my Twitter following has allowed me to interact with a few people, a few set-piece specialists. So um, Thomas Gronemark, I spoke with a little bit um, on Twitter and I also had a phone call with him um, just before I got my, my set-piece gig with my current club um, and talked a little bit about throw-ins with him. Um, and Andres uh, Georgeson from previously Arsenal, um, was Arsenal's set-piece coach last season. I've talked with him a lot on Twitter. Um, and he's only, I think Arsenal only conceded, I think it was the lowest they conceded from corners in the Premier League last season. Um, so they're kind of the two most impressive set-piece-based people I've probably spoke to. Perfect. Yeah, listen, really good conversation. I think it gives us a great insight into what, you know, what goes into this set piece work and, and how it maybe looks moving forward. So really appreciate your time and look forward to seeing your, your work in action and, and what you produce moving forward. Spawn. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.